Well, that was a wonderful song, guys. Thank you. I'm on a journey to practice the presence of God. And I just thought, you know how some people say, I don't know how you hold to the fact that you have one God in three persons. And some people really question that. How could that be? And uh, you know, there are many answers. Uh, but the one I just thought of as we were singing that song is, I want to know that God is in three persons. I know that the Father is managing his whole universe. I kind of like knowing that God the Spirit is here with us at all times. Part of the reality of the Trinity is the comprehensiveness of God in and in in through all things. So it's kind of cool. Okay, what TV show comes to mind? Now, that's what we call a quick change. All right. Uh, what TV show comes to mind when I just do this? Sixty minutes. Yeah, Sunday night, six o'clock. Lana Marie Allison's house. You're all welcome. Tell tell her you're coming, um, because we love to get a little dinner set up, and we just love to turn that on and and watch it. It's been going for almost fifty years, half a century. And when the executive producer was asked, what's the secret of 60 minutes? He said, the secret of 60 minutes is four words. Tell them a story. And so you get issues of the day, cultural realities, individual experiences, all told in three stories, and it's been going on for 50 years, and people, it's still one of the most popular shows on television. Tell them a story. Shouldn't surprise us then. Jesus Christ is a storyteller. Your Savior is a storyteller. In his Gospels, Jesus gives 40 different stories. And the one that we're studying these three weeks is the quintessential. It's the top of the heap. It's the one most remembered, and it's called the story of the prodigal son, although the word prodigal is nowhere in the story. It, it's, just, it's so clear that it's talking about this issue of, of prodigal, which means excessive, extravagant, nearly reckless outpouring of something, of resource. And so we're already learning, because Pastor Rob started us on it last week, that it isn't just that the prodigal son is a prodigal, that he's excessive in his wantonness. It's that the father is the prodigal excessive, extravagant in his love. And today, I'll seek to make the point that the elder brother is also prodigal, excessive in his obedience, excessive in his judgmentalism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The prodigal story. Uh, Charles Dickens said that this is the greatest short story that's ever been written. And, you know, and, I, and the side, well, Jesus was probably pleased that, that Dickens gave him that credit. Of course it would be the greatest short story ever written. Who wrote it? All right? Jesus wrote it. Uh, the great Henry Drummond, who was a scientist and evangelist in the time of Dwight L. Moody, late 19th century, he said that this story is the finest painting in the Bible. It's been the subject of rock and roll songs, of classical pieces, of plays, and of paintings. So welcome, friends, as we step into this great story that Jesus told. If you have your Bibles, please open them to the uh, 15th chapter of Luke, verses 11 through 32. 
And that's on page 1035 in our Bibles there on your seat backs. Now, uh, as you are, are getting, opening up the Bible or turning on the Bible, etc., etc., we're also going to use art to help us understand this story. So as I read, you're going to see uh, Rembrandt's final composition of the prodigal story. And incidentally, Rembrandt did five of these during his, his years of life. And the one that he paints and puts in, in, in oils is literally done one year before he dies. And so we've placed that for you now as I read starting verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. And not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had and he set off for a distant country where he squandered his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating. No one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, verse 17, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? Here I am starving to death. I will set out. I will go back to my father. I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son. He threw his arms around his son and he kissed him. And the son said to the father, Father, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, Bring the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He was lost, he's found. So they began to celebrate. Now look at the painting. Rembrandt places the painting when the son first returns. Look at the younger son. Even his sandals are torn, falling off his feet. He's filthy. His, his head has been shaved. He has no dignity left. But he has the Father's love. And as he kneels before the Father, the Father embraces him and covers them with his love and his protection. The robe is yet to be imparted from the Father to the Son. Now look at the right corner of the picture. There also in light is someone else in a great expensive robe. Because you see, this was probably the most wealthy family in the whole region. And that's the elder brother. The elder brother. Let's keep reading now, starting in verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he calls to the servants, and he asks them what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, 
and the father has killed the fatted calf because his son is back safe and sound. The older brother became angry, refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. I never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me even a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you're always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Look now at the painting. What do you see in the elder brother? You see a robe of glory and power still on him. You see his hands clasped in front of him, which is always a sign of non-communication. You see him standing and looking down. Does he have compassion in his eyes, or is that rebuke? In his case, it's the latter, not the former. So the story of the prodigal, the greatest short story ever told, three key characters in it, each of them, as I said, prodigals, excessive, extravagant, nearly reckless in what they give or what they don't. But the, the older brother is the one I've been asked to deal with. Rob did a wonderful job last, last week with the, with the younger son coming home and receiving the father's forgiveness and love despite his behavior. I get the older son. So let's start off by cutting him a little slack, shall we? What is Did I miss something? It was good, I could tell. All right. Um, give him a little slack. I mean, he's the older brother. And, and he is, if you will, the, the, the kid in the family that plays by the rules. Often the firstborn, not always. He's the good kid. And he's a good son. 66% of the estate will be his by law. He's, he's the firstborn. He's the co-supervisor of this whole massive estate that may have been the largest economic engine in the whole region. He is the father's voice when the father is not present. He is the father's present when the father is not present. He represents the father in the village. He represents the father in negotiations. He represents the father uh, whenever there are city events, village events. He's Prince Charles. He's the next to the throne. And with what the younger brother does, and has done, it's only been made harder. More work, more responsibility since the younger brother left. More shame because the father has been shamed greatly that he received this son back. The son should have been beaten minimally and perhaps cast out of the family forever for what he did, and he didn't do that, and the whole village was in an uproar. And because he is the father's right arm, he receives the shame too. He bore the anger of the community for all the community had lost in jobs and in wealth as a third of the estate was sold. He's the good kid. He plays by the rules. He especially plays by the fifth commandment, which reads, honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. 
so it may go well with you and so that you may enjoy long life on this earth. Okay, what am I trying to say today? Where am I going to go with this? And, and if it would be my hope you would take away only one thing, I hope you take away more than one, but if you were to take away only one thing, here's what it would be. And I tried to write it so that it's memorable. You'll never know joy if you practice the ploy that whatever you do is really all about you. You will never know joy if you practice the ploy that whatever you do is really about you. So, elder brother, here we come. All right, now, note right there in uh, verse 25, it says he was in the field being responsible like he always was responsible. When he came near the house, he heard the celebration. It says he heard music and dancing. And, and we have discovered the music that was used during that time in some ancient documents. And it kind of, kind of goes like this. Whether you're a brother or whether you're a mother, you're staying alive, staying alive. Because he's staying alive now. Okay? And then, feel the city breaking because everybody's shaking. He's staying alive. Yeah. Marie and I took disco lessons. You want me to do that? No. All right. So maybe that wasn't the song, but it was something kind of like that. Okay. And it's happy, and it's celebrative, and this is all great. Verse 25. When he heard the music, verse 26, he called one of the servants, and he asked him, what's going on? Your brother has come. He replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back and he's safe and he is sound. And this is where the black thundercloud explodes. Okay, just like last night in the great storms that we had here, I, I don't know if your power went out. Ours, ours did a couple of times. A raging thunderclouds, lightning, and the dispersion of, of rain like nobody's business, and sun is gone, and black darkness and has come, and suddenly the insides of this man, which are about as corrupt as you can get, start coming out. Look what it says there. Starting in verse 28, the older brother became angry angry he was seizing with anger nothing could assuage his anger he refused to go in now in that culture for him to refuse to go in to because he would have been the host of this banquet he's the right arm of the father for him to not go in only shames the father worse who had called this together and had the village come and all of the leadership, and now it's time for the elder son to preside, and he won't even go into the room. Look what happens after that. He doesn't go in, but the father will go out to him, and he pleads with his son to be a part of this. And then look what the son says. All these years I've been slaving for you. The anger is coming out now. Really? Do you think he really slaved all those years? Richest kid in the region? Do you think he really slaved? I don't think he really slaved. He probably worked hard, 
But here's his perspective. I have been slaving for you. I obeyed every order you gave me. At least outwardly. Meanwhile, the anger grows and the anger grows. You never gave me, you, you, you never even gave me a goat to celebrate with my friends. Okay, goat meat is the least desirable of meats in the Middle East. It's the meat of the poor. Where is the fattened calf that has been set aside for the younger son is the ultimate. It is the filet mignon. He says, you never even gave me a goat. Really? Probably the reason you were never given a goat is you ate beef and chicken most of your life, didn't you? Richest kid in the county. But he's so mad. He's so angry. And then, then, then his disrespect gets even worse. He doesn't even call his father father. In that culture, you would not do that. He says, you, yours, and this son of yours squanders with prostitutes. Really? Text doesn't tell us that he squandered his life with prostitutes. It says he was reckless, wild living, spent all his money. It doesn't bring up the prostitution. Might say more about the one who brought it up than the one who's been considered to be the perpetrator. He's lost it. He is, he is, he is, he's out of control. And as my wife Maria has taught me, when your response to an issue is much greater than the issue at hand, it means stuff's been boiling for quite a while. Now this happened to me last night with our coffee pot. <laughs> it was a late afternoon and, and we, have, I, I, we, we have this cool Cuisinart coffee maker which has the, the thermos on it because I hate reheating coffee. And you get a nice thermos and it holds it warm for several hours. I commend this to you. But, Marie and I have a running battle as to how tight one puts the lid on it. My wife insists that you have to turn it one quarter turn to get any coffee to come out. I've proved to her this is wrong. That all it does is release the heat in the craft which gets my coffee cold. And so I said to her last night, I said, honey, can we talk about something? <laughs> She's like, for me to the third row. <laughs> and she goes, yes. And I said, can, can, so I have this all the way on. Can I show you how it does pour when it's completely tight? And, and yet you, you keep loosening it. And it makes my coffee cold. You know what she did? She laughed. <laughs> Typical elder-itis response. Controlling my own life, liking my coffee warm, bought the Cuisinart for that purpose, could have got a Mr. Coffee a lot cheaper. Just the little things that are in us that explode out of us. Elderitis. You know, some people who act really good really are. Some people who act really good are really not. Seething, boiling, angry, critical 
watchdogs. Now remember who the audience is as Jesus tells this story. He's got sinners and tax collectors, younger sons, and he's got Pharisees. There were 6,000 of them, and they sought to keep 613 laws with no variance. And they were great at telling everybody else where they were wrong all the time. That's his audience. Who is he speaking to with the elder brother? He's speaking to them. Just in the little bit we have in the story, in this incredible story, you, you see anger out of control. You see envy in him. You see jealousy. You see um, coveting. You see cruelty and disrespect to his father. You see deceit. And you see a quasi-self-righteousness that rather explodes out of him. Younger sons are known for their spectacular sins. The, the ones that make the evening news. It's the biggies. And, and, and certainly when it comes to be a pastor or a minister, you would never hire a minister who committed the spectacular sins. But Jesus is arguing that those more, and here's what I wrote, sinister, respectable sins are the worst. That's where he's going with this. If you study the sin lists in the New Testament, the two best are in Romans chapter 1 and Galatians 5. I know you can't read to re wait to read those, okay? Romans 1 chapter 5 of Galatians. In both lists, there are about 20 sins that are mentioned. Did you know that two-thirds of those are the sinister, respectable sins? Gossip, slander, factions, uncontrolled anger. And Jesus is zoning in on that. It, it, it is vicious how these can work together. If you think of the illustration... Check my time real quick. If you think of the illustration of someone who's struggling with, say, alcoholism or, or some addictive tendency, and their closest friend or their spouse who's ever in, in is, is the one who's their caretaker. And when we talk about the danger of codependency, it's where someone who's struggled with a spectacular sin and still probably does begins to be cared for somebody who has elder brother-itis. And so what can happen is the codependent takes care of them and provides for them and looks like everything they're doing is really good, but underneath what often happens is they become more and more angry, more and more critical, and more and more self-righteous because they are not like that one. And then the one who is that one feels shamed all the more and spirals down. And the one who's above it all keeps getting madder and angrier and more critical and starts spiraling down. It's a vicious circle that can take place. I, I wouldn't be at all surprised if this younger brother grew up in this home with being criticized by his older brother all the time. Jesus takes this really seriously. In fact, here's what's interesting. 
If you think about it this way, the brother who was farthest away with the more spectacular sins is actually closer to the father than the one who sleeps in the next room. Why? Because the elder brother is blind to his own condition and actually believes that he's in the right. The brother farthest away is nearer to the father all the time. So the younger brother is, is engaged in uh, it morally emptiness. The older brother is engaged in moral blindness and self-righteousness. Okay, you ready for the $64,000 question? Whichest of these art thou? Which are you? You have a tendency more toward younger brother or toward older brother? Or maybe a cadre of both. That's where I've come to the more I study this passage. I realize that apart from being with Jesus Christ and allowing his presence to transform me, I can full in, fall into either of these camps, but most notably, I like the more respectable sins that destroy life far more fully. You say, I don't know, Lon, which one I have. I can help you with that. Aren't you glad when your pastors want to help you with these things like this? I'm going to give you six traits of what I call elder brother-itis, okay? Elder brother-itis. Now, these are in three categories. The first two characteristics have to do with your relationship with yourself. The second two have to do with your relationship with others. And the third two have to do with your relationship with God. Number one, towards self, guilt. Say, well, what do you mean by that? Okay, when something goes wrong in your life, do you immediately wonder what you did wrong? Whatever it is. Car breaks down and you're trying to get to an appointment. You're late to the appointment. You don't get the job. Do you... Do you do you ever have the tendency, okay, God, what have I done wrong now that I didn't get blessed in this? Trait one. Trait two. If criticism deflates and devastates you, you may be an elder brother-itis land. Why? Because your whole identity is built upon your performance. And if somebody questions your performance... It questions the very nature of you being you. Well, how does it impact relationships with others? Well, that's the third one, the judgmentalness. I've been talking about it, haven't I? The hypercritical attitude of other people, and especially the preponderance of either jealousy or envy, the more or less. Jealousy is when I see what you have, and it makes me want more. Envy is when I see what you have and I want you to have less. Judgmentalism, critical spirit. How does it affect your life with God? Well, number one, a very dry God life. 
it's not that God doesn't exist. He does, and you're seeking to obey him in every way that you can, uh, and you ask for things, and you serve him, but it's dry, and you know why? Because you either never knew or you just forgot how sweet the intimate love relationship with God can be despite our outward actions. So it's dry. You, you see people sing these songs, Holy Spirit, you are welcome. And, and you say, wow, what is, are these people? Woo. It's like watching a couple that's just fallen in love. You wish for it, but you're kind of embarrassed by it. It's a dry life with God of serving, of seeking and asking for things. Serving God's important. Asking God for things is important, but only when it comes out of the deep relationship of feeling the Father's affection for you, no matter what. And then finally, the last one. You don't love God as much as you're angry at God. Why? Because God doesn't keep his end of the bargain. What do you mean? Well, I live an outstanding moral life. I even rooted for the Cubs for all those years they lost. That takes a healthy human. I, I, and, and again, when your outward performance is how you measure your own identity, it leads to this. What's motivating you to do that? And usually it is, is because your belief is that you've got to be good to get God's blessings. And so when God doesn't come through, when the car gets a flat tire, when your child has cancer, when everything comes apart, instead of crying out to God and hoping in God, you try to be better and better to hope that the blessings will come and you'll be let down. Because even Jesus said, as they persecute me, so they will persecute you. In this world, you will have great tribulations. Nobody gets out. But a transaction has taken place. My goodness gets God's blessing. Incidentally, almost anyone I talk to anywhere in the world about Jesus Christ will always say this one. Well, I think I'm good enough to have life with God now and forever. It's the same thing. It's elder brotheritis. It's believing that this is what I do so that I get all of this blessing. And when it doesn't happen, a lot of people get really, really really angry at God. A few traits of elder brotheritis. But now here comes the, the, oh my goodness, I never thought about it. That, at least I'm hoping that's what happens. This is every pastor hopes to throw one thing at you that you go away saying, man, that guy's intelligent. Uh, <laughs> whoa, how did he come up with that? Uh, okay, jokingly. But listen to this now. Younger brothers disobey God to get things for themselves. Elder brothers obey God to get things for themselves. What's the common joiner there? It's about me. 
It's about me having blessings. In both is the craving and the desire of self first and self foremost. And I know none of us are in this state all the time, but a lot of the time we are. It's underneath almost everything. The, the essence of humans apart from God is self-focus. And so in both, at their core, both brothers turn to love self more than they do the father. Listen, when the father addresses the elder son, what's the first thing he says to him? Almost as if he's shocked that the son doesn't get it. I am with you all the time. You have my presence. We eat dinner together every day. You get me all the time. Don't you? And everything I have is yours. It's almost as if the father's dumbfounded to get this reaction from the older son who seems to just want more and more and more and more and more. And he's always had the essence thing. There's only one thing needful, Jesus says to Martha, and Mary has found it. It's me. It's my presence. So, two sides of the same coin. The essence of sin is not as much rule-breaking as it is in the putting of oneself in the place of God as the essence of your life. Where and how you do that, I don't know. I'm still learning more and more about it in me. But here's the question. Does it matter whether you're an older brother or a younger brother? It leads to emptiness and discontent and no joy. You'll never know joy if you practice the ploy that whatever you do is really about you. Never know joy. Will both brothers be saved? And here's the interesting thing about the story. Jesus doesn't conclude it. We see the younger son, and he's doing what's right. He's recognized how awful he's been, and, and he wants to even go. He wants to become an older brother. He's willing to become an older brother. If he can have the father's approval, he's in such danger of becoming an older brother. I'll work for you. I'll, I'll, I'll become a servant and I'll pay you back. The father goes, no. And he places his hands upon him and he gives him his robe. And he places his signet ring. I receive you and have totally loved you. Your performance in life Next to God's love is two completely different things. Question, can I ever do enough to please God by my behavior? The answer is an emphatic no, never. But God's extravagant, prodigious love is yours despite you, not your goodness. It's his goodness, not your perfection. It's his perfection. And once you begin to know and experience that, it gives you the freedom to become all you were meant to be in him out of love. And his spirit starts to transform you into the own likeness of his son. Jesus doesn't finish the story as a story, but he does finish it by his life. And now my final point is this. Is there a true elder brother? 
The answer is yes. The true elder brother in this culture would have immediately gone after his younger brother. He would have followed him to a distant country. He would have done anything to bring him back to the father and to the estate. He would have sacrificed his own wealth, as much of it as necessary, to find the brother and bring him home. He would have, if you will, put him on his own shoulders like a soldier who picks up a wounded comrade to bring him home. Even if he didn't want to come, he'd bring him home. That's what elder brothers do. This elder brother didn't. But Jesus, his elder brother, did. Jesus is the true elder brother who comes down from heaven on a search and rescue mission, who lays aside and at his own expense of even his own life. He gives up the wealth of heaven to live in the decrepitcy of earth. He is the older brother, just as God is the father. And so today we are thankful for Jesus, for the beauty of him being the elder brother who goes to save younger and elders and all of us and pour out the Father's love on us for the forgiveness of our sins and call us co-heirs with him in Jesus Christ. Say, what do I do about this? If you're a younger brother, Repent. If you're an elder brother, repent. God wants to break you of the bondage you're in of thinking that you earn his love. Amen? Father, take these words, do with them in our hearts what each of us need, and we thank you for Jesus, the true elder brother. Amen.